All right, morning everyone. Good to see all of you. Glad to be back preaching. Appreciate my two weeks off, but thankful to be back to share God's word with you. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we come before you in this Lord's day to worship you, not just through song and prayer, but through the preaching of your word. Allow us to see this as a time of continued worship and sanctification as well, uh, growth in our affection for Christ and understanding of him. I do thank you so much for um, your son and his coming and for the account we get to discuss this morning, the revelation further of him that we receive. I do pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us and conform us into his image. As always, we bring before you any unbelievers who have joined us, thankful that uh, they're here today and would pray for their salvation, especially for any who would be unbelievers but believe that they are believers, that you would save them, grant them repentance, faith in Christ, and then according to Psalm 51, as Carl shared, that cleansing that David was able to experience by faith and repentance. We thank you for this time, Lord, ask that you can be pleased with it, that it would be about you, that, and in that we would be able to remove from our minds any distractions. I'm assuming we're all busy, and it's very easy for the enemy to tempt us to be focused on other things other than you and what you want to say to us. And so we do pray for that discipline, Lord, to be focused on your word as you speak to us through and just use me as your vessel for this time. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. The title this morning's sermon is Misunderstanding Old Testament Prophecies of Jesus Coming. Misunderstanding Old Testament Prophecies of Jesus Coming. So if you're new to joining us on Sunday mornings, we've been working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse, and we will be continuing that this morning, but go ahead and stay in Zechariah. We need to look at these two verses before we turn to Luke 19. This past week, I read about some of the greatest misunderstandings in history, and I settled on the Treaty of Wachali as the second greatest misunderstanding. So on May 2nd, 1889, Ethiopia and Italy signed this treaty to promote, of all things, friendship and trade. But the two countries wrote the treaty in their own language, and one part, Article 17, became famous for the problematic nature in the translation. The Ethiopian version stated that the emperor, the Ethiopian emperor, could use, could use the Italian embassy if he wanted to conduct foreign affairs. Italy understood that the Ethiopian Empire emperor was committing to using the Italian embassy. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but it led Italy to believe that Ethiopia had given up its independence and become one of Italy's colonies and was now under Italy's protection. Italy informed all of the European governments that they could no longer conduct diplomatic relations with Ethiopia and instead could only deal with Italy. Ethiopia did not like this, so they denounced the treaty. Italy attempted to enforce the treaty, and then when this failed, Italy invaded Ethiopia in 1895. Ethiopia ended up winning the war, safeguarding its independence. And so if you're listening, you heard that correctly, because of the misunderstanding in a treaty that was intended to produce friendship and trade, two nations ended up going to war. So I told you this is the second worst misunderstanding in human history. So of course you want to know what? The first. And I would say it occurred at Jesus' triumphal entry. The Treaty of Wachali pales in comparison to the misunderstanding that occurred when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. The people in attendance totally misunderstood what they were witnessing. So I want to explain what happened this past week. 
in my studying or preparation for this sermon. So we, I taught on the triumphal entry, and does anyone know what transpires immediately after the triumphal entry with Christ? And Luke's the only gospel to record this. Anyone know what Jesus did? He wept. <laughs> he wept. So it's an incredibly shocking response, considering we would expect him to rejoice as the people were rejoicing and celebrating him, or we could even go so far as to say worshiping him. So as I'm preparing this sermon, trying to help you understand why Jesus would weep at this moment, a time when it looks like he would celebrate, we really have to go to the Old Testament to see why there is this response from Jesus, which seems so disturbing in light of the praise and adoration that he was receiving. So we'll turn to Luke, but first I want you to look at Zechariah 9. You'll recognize this first verse. Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So you probably recognize this verse. We looked at it in detail in the sermon that discussed Jesus' triumphal entry. There's one thing that I didn't point out at that time. Notice in the middle of the verse it says, having salvation is he. Having salvation is he. Does that sound like it's worded a little oddly? What would you expect it to say instead? Having salvation with him, perhaps? But it's actually very fitting to say, having salvation is he, because it makes Jesus himself sound as though he is salvation, which he is. What does Jesus's name mean? It means Yahweh is, or God is, salvation. So keep this in mind because we're going to come back to it. But the reason I wanted to start here in Zechariah is actually to have you look at verse 10. So look at verse 10 with me. Zechariah 9:10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. Ephraim is another name for Israel because Ephraim was the largest of Israel's tribes. And Zechariah is prophesying here of the second coming when Jesus defeats the nations that assemble against Israel. So this looks to the second coming in verse 10. Jesus returns, battle of Armageddon takes place. Israel's enemies that had assembled are destroyed by Christ. Christ, as it says here, cuts off the chariot, the war horse, and the battle bow. And then after that, with the enemies cut off, there can be peace. And so verse 10 says, he, that's Christ, will speak peace to the nations. His rule, this is the millennial kingdom of Christ that we've also talked about, is going to be from sea to sea, and from the river that'd be the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. Now, we know that order of prophetic events, the second coming of Christ, the battle of Armageddon, and then Jesus physically establishes his kingdom on the earth and sets up his rule from Jerusalem, from the throne of David. Numerous well-known verses tell us that this is a time of peace. Isaiah 2.4, for example, people will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither they sh shall they learn war anymore. Isaiah 11.6, the wolf dwells with the lamb, the leopard lies down with the young goat, the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together. A little child leads them, the calf and the bear graze. The young, the young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child plays with the cobra. 
So those are verses that are describing the peace that occurs during the millennial reign of Christ, which this verse is prophesying of. It says that Jesus, after he returns, sets up his kingdom, will speak peace to the nations. Now, here's what I need you to notice for this morning's sermon, and this is super important. Actually, let me just ask you. Zechariah 9.9 is about Jesus's first coming, and verse 10 is about his Did you see how you just jumped there? From his first coming to his second coming. Two verses back to back. No time seemingly passing between them. And this is what's known as prophetic compression. Prophetic compression. And this brings us to lesson one. The Old Testament prophecies of Jesus, the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus' coming were compressed. The Old Testament prophecies of Jesus' coming were compressed. You've got the arrival of the Savior in verse 9, immediately followed by a description of his reign in verse 10. How much time, at least in our day, has passed between verses 9 and 10? Yeah, we've got 2,000 years. Turn to the left to Isaiah 9, 6. I'll show you just two more examples of this. Turn to Isaiah 9, 6. First prophet in your Bibles, right after the poetical books of Psalms, Proverbs, after poetry and wisdom, the first prophet, Isaiah, toward the middle of your Bibles. Isaiah 9, 6. Familiar verse, especially as we approach Christmas. For a few more pages turning, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And then pause right here. A couple things about this. You don't expect to see these sorts of words about a what? About a child, right? A child doesn't carry the government on his shoulders or shoulder. And again, this is looking for, when this child has the government on his shoulder, this is looking to this child's second coming. So now we've got prophetic compression and we don't even go from one verse to another. We've got comp- prophetic compression in the same verse, don't we? We went, we went right from a child being born or given to that child having the government on his shoulders, which is to say we just went right from the first coming to the second coming. goes on, says, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want to get back to Luke, so I don't want to spend too much time on this verse, but there's could do a whole sermon on it, but there's probably one title that needs a little explanation, and that's Everlasting Father. Does it seem odd to see this child or Jesus being called Everlasting Father right here? Probably makes us ask two different questions. First, we say, I thought we were talking about a child, now we're talking about a father. And then we say, I thought that child was Jesus Christ, God the Son, but it sounds like we're talking about God the Father. We're talking about the first person of the triune nature of God or the second person. We are talking about the second person, Jesus Christ. This is a fitting title for him. He should not be confused with God the Father here. It's best to understand the title Father means originator or source of in this sense. Kind of like when we say Satan is the father of lies. He is the originator or he is the source of lies by calling him Father. Jesus is the everlasting Father in that he's the originator or source of time. 
He himself is eternal. John 8, 58, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is unchanging. He's outside of time. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. One more passage that's particularly interesting. Turn to Isaiah 61. There are numerous examples of prophetic compression that I could show you, but I just want you to see three this morning. But what I'd like you to do from now on, and I appreciated the way Rick, Pastor Rick said this when he preached last week while you're turning to Isaiah 61. Just let this wash over you. He talked about giving someone a fish or teaching them to fish, right? And he applied that to scripture. And I like that a lot because the idea is as a pastor, you're not going to teach your church everything they need to know. But if you can teach them to fish or give them tools or resources to better understand their Bible reading, that would be the best approach. And so I hope that this might be a tool that you keep with you when you read the Old Testament, especially the prophetic books, to see this sort of compression between the prophecies of Jesus' first and second coming. Now here in Isaiah 61.1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And this, you should understand this as Jesus himself speaking. So Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, or the gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That Hebrew word for anointed is mushak. What word do we get from that? The Hebrew word for anointed is mushak, and what English word transliteration do we get from that? Messiah, yeah, that's what Messiah means. It means anointed one. And then to say Jesus is the Christ is to say he's the anointed one. The Greek word for anointed one is krio, which is where we get the word Christ. And so Christ and Messiah both mean anointed, but one's Hebrew and one's Greek. What you need to know about this verse is everything in it is spiritual. Everything in this verse is spiritual. This is describing things Jesus will do spiritually, not physically. For example, it says he's going to preach the good news to who? Preach the good news is the gospel. Preach the gospel to who? To the poor, right? That doesn't mean the financially poor, although the financially poor did hear the gospel. It means he preaches the gospel to the spiritually poor, to kind of think of the language of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I think that's Matthew 5, 3. And the idea is they are the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit because they recognize that they have nothing with which they could earn or purchase salvation. Therefore, they will look outside themselves to Christ to be saved and receive the kingdom of God or salvation as a result or blessing of that. So he proclaims liberty to the captives. Does this mean that he releases everyone who is a captive physically? No, this is spiritually speaking, that he releases people from their captivity to sin. He opens the prison to those who are bound. Again, spiritual versus physical. And if I just camp on this example for one moment, does anyone remember an individual who happened to interpret this physically instead of spiritually and experience considerable problems in his faith? Let me say this one more time. There was an individual who looked at this verse and others like it about the Messiah coming, coming and opening the prison to those who were bound, and he interpreted this physically versus spiritually, and it caused him, of all people, the last person you'd expect, to doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Does anyone know who I'm talking about? John the Baptist. That's exactly right. Listen to this. You wouldn't believe it if it wasn't written here. Matthew 11:2. 2, when John the Baptist heard in prison, so John the Baptist is in prison and he hears about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? Now to me, that's absolutely shocking that the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist himself, would question whether Jesus was the Messiah. So by this point, John has identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was the individual (laughs) not just closest to Jesus when he was baptized and the dove descended from heaven onto him and the voice of the Father rang out saying, you're my beloved son and you I'm well pleased. Not only was John closest to Jesus when that happened, John was the one who was baptizing Jesus when that happened. So you look at this and say, how could John of all people question whether Jesus is the Messiah. It related to his circumstances. He found himself in prison. He knew prophecies like this, and there were others, just two more. Isaiah 42, 7, the Messiah will bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. When it talks about the Messiah bringing out people from the darkness they're in, that is a spiritual darkness they're in. Many of these people could be experiencing plenty of physical light from the sun, but he delivers them from that bondage to spiritual darkness into the light of his marvelous kingdom. Isaiah 49.9, the Messiah says to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. So John the Baptist knows these prophecies about the Messiah bringing prisoners, releasing them from their captivity, and he doesn't understand how he could be in prison. So he actually sends messengers to ask if Jesus is the Messiah. So a man greater than anyone who'd ever been born of a woman, Jesus said, had problems when he looked at what was spiritual, but interpreted it physically. Now the next verse, Isaiah 61, 2, just the first part of it. He says he's anointed, Jesus says he's anointed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then pause here. The word year, that should not be interpreted literally. Understand it as a season or a time. The word favor is often used interchangeably with what other word? The word favor is often used interchangeably with what other word? Grace, that's right. Yeah, we'll even define grace by saying that it is unmerited or unearned favor. And so to say to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is really to say to proclaim the year of or season of grace or dispensation of grace, or we know that to be the church age, the time to receive or experience God's grace or to be justified or declared righteous by grace through faith. Isaiah wrote about the same period a few chapters earlier, Isaiah 49.8. He said, in a time of favor, I've answered you. In a day of salvation, I've helped you. So my reason for reading that verse is you see how he uses these interchangeably. He says a time of favor and associates that with a day of salvation. Now, I want you to notice something important. There's a comma after the word favor. Do you see that there? Anyone know how old that comma is? How old is that comma? (laughs) It's 2,000 years old. We live before that comma. The church age is before that comma. The time of the Lord's favor is before that comma. The dispensation of grace before that comma. The church age before that comma, the day of salvation, before that comma. I think the King James says the acceptable year 
of the Lord, which is a fitting translation, and the New King James might say that as well, because it communicates that now, during the church age, is the time to be accepted by the Lord. So what comes after this comma? Look at the rest of the verse for the answer. What comes after the comma? The day of vengeance of our God. Is that what your Bibles say? The day of vengeance of our God. Now, that was a quick jump, wasn't it? We just jumped from the year of the Lord's favor to the day of vengeance of our God. We just jumped from the first coming to the second coming in the same verse. And the only thing that separated those two comings was a comma. That is compression. Now turn to Luke 4, 16. Getting closer to Luke 19. Luke 4, 16. Here's the background to this. We'll go through it quickly, so I'll just start to share the context. Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth. He's becoming famous by this point. Verse 14 says a report about him went throughout the surrounding country. Verse 15 says he's teaching in the synagogues, being glorified by everyone. And so when he shows up in his hometown, it is a huge deal, lots of excitement. Everyone wants to hear from him. And so look at Luke 4.16 with me. Luke 4.16. He came to Nazareth where he had, this is Jesus, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to church. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolls the scroll, and he finds the place where it was written. And you'll recognize this. It's what we just read in Isaiah 61. And I don't know if this was what he was handed to read. We're just told he was given the scroll of Isaiah. I tend to think this is what he found to read. I don't think that this is what they found for him because we're not told that. We're just told that he's given this scroll... And then he finds the place where it's written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Exactly what we just read in Isaiah 61. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then here it is, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, let me share something and then I'll make a point. We like to read the Bible as a family and last night we just finished the book of romans there's nothing fancy about what we do we choose a book and then kind of go around the room reading a verse for each child and then talk about the verse and if there's not a lot of discussion just going to the next verse aside from the spiritual advantages to doing this there's also the educational advantage of helping your children to read and so it's not uncommon, I think my kids would tell you, that many of them end up reading verses numerous times until they can read it correctly. They don't have to read the verse numerous times until they can exposit it well. They just have to read the verse numerous times until they read it correctly. And that doesn't just mean reading all of the words or names correctly. And to be honest, I don't, I'm not convinced that I understand how all of the names should be pronounced. But when I say reading correctly, that means pausing at the right places, having the right inflection, um, stopping at the right places and not pausing when you're not supposed to pause and not stopping when you're not supposed to stop. So you talk to your kids about commas and you talk to your kids about periods and then when they stop when they shouldn't, you say there's no comma, there's no period there. If they race through a comma or they race through a period, you say you got to read that again because you didn't pause 
where you didn't stop, where you were supposed to pause, where you were supposed to stop. I mention this because you could look at the way Jesus read this verse and think that someone needs to talk to him about how to read verses correctly. Because what did he do when he reached this comma? He stopped. He didn't just pause at a comma, he stopped at a comma. And we know this, you don't stop at a comma, do you? You pause, you stop at a period. But he stopped at this comma. And why did he do that? Well, I'll show you why. Look at verse 20. He rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were shocked too. They're like, I can't believe he stopped reading at a comma. Doesn't he know you don't stop reading there? That's probably not why they were surprised. Look at verse 21. He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he tells them that what he read was fulfilled for them, or is fulfilled for them. And because this is his first coming, he can only read those verses that are fulfilled, or excuse me, he can only read those words that are fulfilled in his first coming. And so he stops reading at the comma, because everything after the comma is his second coming, which is not fulfilled in their in their lifetimes. It was 2,000 years ago. Those words won't be fulfilled, perhaps not in our lifetimes, until his second coming. Now, I could show you numerous other examples of prophecies of Jesus' first and second coming being put together like this, but you get the idea. Now, I want to ask you to do something. Imagine you don't live in the church age. Imagine you don't know all that you know. Imagine you don't have all of the New Testament. In fact, do your best to try to imagine you live in the Old Testament. You don't know that there's going to be two what? Comings, because everything's compressed together. And so when you read these prophecies, you see one coming, more than likely. And this brings us to lesson two. The Jews expected Old Testament prophecies to be fulfilled in one coming. The Jews expected Old Testament prophecies to be fulfilled in one coming. The Jews expect all these prophecies about the second coming to be fulfilled right after the first coming. Or this might be a better way to say it. The Jews expect all the prophecies about the second coming to be fulfilled at the first coming. So picture this. You're a godly, faithful Jew... You're studying the Old Testament. You read Isaiah 61 about the year of the Lord's favor. And what do you expect right after that? Let me say this one more time. I do want you guys to answer. <laughs> You're reading Isaiah 61. You read about the year of the Lord's favor. And then what do you expect right after that? The vengeance of our God. That's exactly right. You're reading Isaiah 9. A child will be born, a son will be given. And what do you expect right after that? The government's going to be on his shoulders. About the only thing you might have to wait for is for the child to grow up, right? And then even in your mind, I'm not kidding, you might do this. You could say, well, Josiah became king when he was eight, and this is the Messiah, so maybe we only have to wait eight years to see the government on his shoulders. Or, to get closer to Luke 19, you read Zechariah 9. You read verse 9. 
that your king is coming to you humble. He's mounted on a donkey. So if you were fortunate enough in your lifetime to be one of the Jews who saw the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. In other words, you're not one of the Jews who throughout the previous centuries or millenniums was waiting to see Zechariah 9.9 or waiting to see your king coming humbly, lowly on a donkey. You actually got to see that. You see the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, and what do you expect right after that? The fulfillment of Zechariah 9.10, the chariot, the war horse, the battle bow being cut off from Jerusalem, which is to say all of your enemies being destroyed, which is to say Rome being overthrown you've been persecuted you're beat up you hate rome you cannot understand for the life of you why they have been able to mistreat you god's people as long as they have and all you're waiting for is that messiah to come and he comes and you see the fulfillment of zechariah 9 9 and here's my point i talked about all that just to be able to say this to you at the triumphal entry they were not celebrating Zechariah 9.9. They were celebrating Zechariah 9.10. At the triumphal entry, they were not celebrating the prophecies of the first coming. They were celebrating the prophecies of the second coming. And I'll show you something interesting. Turn to John 12. You might remember while you turn there, you might remember John 12. We looked at it when studying the triumphal entry because john's gospel makes a nice supplement to luke's gospel and that's what the gospels do right they fill in the details and gaps that other gospel writers didn't include and we get this great full picture of christ's first coming i mean if anyone should have four books about him or you could say 66 books it's jesus but four books about his earthly life and so when i was studying luke's gospel the triumphal entry there were a lot of details that weren't there. This, it almost surprised me. It, there's no mention of him saying Hosanna. There's no mention of the palm branches. So we look in John 12 at his account of the triumphal entry. And that was in verses 12 through 15. But here's a verse we didn't look at. So right after the triumphal entry in verses 12 to 15 is verse 16. Look at verse 16. John 12, 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Okay. Now, this is interesting. Just give me your attention. This is interesting what you just read. Well, let me just spell it out. You just read that the triumphal entry took place and they didn't understand what they saw. And that's interesting because it looks like they did understand what they saw. It looks like they perfectly understood what they saw. Because when the triumphal entry happened, they celebrated. They worshiped. They adored. They cried out, Hosanna, save us. They threw down palm branches. They waved palm branches. They threw their clothes down, threw their clothes on the donkey for Jesus. I mean, it couldn't have been a better reception. So why would it say, I mean, they quoted Psalm 118, which was the psalm Jesus was fulfilling along with Zechariah 9.9. So why would it say they didn't understand this? 
Because the truth is they had no idea what was happening at the triumphal entry. They completely misunderstood the king they were receiving. That's probably the best way to say it. They completely misunderstood the king they were receiving. And the other reason that this sermon is so important is because without this sermon, you are never going to understand why five days later, the same people who are worshiping at the triumphal entry are then yelling what? Crucify him, crucify him. If you've never thought about that before, it is one of the most confusing parts of the Gospels. How can these people, five days apart, they're the same people, they're the Jews, be worshiping, and then five days later, calling out for his crucifixion? Because he wasn't the king they wanted. It looks like they're accepting him. They are rejecting him. They have no idea what's happening right here. Look at verse 13, John 12, 13. They took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him, and they cried out, and they said, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Imagine their anticipation. The king is going to come and overthrow Rome. And I'm just, the reason I want you to look at this is these palm branches reveal their misunderstanding. And here's why I tell you that. When I was in seminary, one of the most enjoyable classes I took was on the intertestamental period, which is the period between the two testaments. There's 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I took a class on that period of time, and there is an incredible account with the Maccabees. And the Maccabees overthrew Syrian oppression. And when the Maccabees overthrew Syrian oppression and reclaimed the temple during that intertestamental period, the people waved palm branches. The reason the Jews are waving palm branches here is they think that Jesus is going to overthrow Roman oppression just like the Maccabees overthrew Syrian oppression decades earlier. And this brings us to lesson three. The Jews wanted salvation from Rome versus salvation from sin. The Jews wanted salvation from Rome versus salvation from sin. So I asked you to kind of hold this in your mind. Zechariah 9.9, Jesus, salva- or righteous and having salvation is he. Zechariah 9.9 said, righteous and having salvation is he. Jesus had salvation with him not the salvation they wanted it was spiritual they wanted physical they're yelling hosanna they're yelling save now and they want to be saved but they don't want to be saved the way that jesus is going to save (laughs) they want to be saved from rome he wants to save them from the true and greater enemies they face sin and death now turn to luke 19 We will not come close to covering these verses this morning, but at least you'll have the foundation you need for next Sunday's sermon. Luke is the only gospel writer to record this incredibly shocking moment. Look in, did I, what verse did I tell you to go to? Luke 19 what? Did I say 11? Look at, let, go ahead and look at Luke 19, 11 first. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he's near Jerusalem and because, notice this, they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. You're in Luke 19. Jesus tells the parable of the Minas and then what happens right after the parable of the Minas? This isn't a trick question. Look in your Bible. What's, 
This is the parable to Minas, and what's right after the parable to Minas? The triumphal entry. So, right, so this is how confused the people were. Right before the triumphal entry, Jesus has to stop and preach a parable to try to straighten them out, to try to help them understand, no, no, the kingdom is not appearing right now. And even that's a little strange, because follow me for a moment. When you read the kingdom of God is not going to appear, appear immediately, you're kind of like, okay, I don't get it, because through the entire gospel, John, then Jesus, John the Baptist, then Jesus, then the 12, then the 70 have been preaching that the kingdom of God has come, right? So how can we repeatedly read through the gospel, the kingdom of God has come, and then read that the kingdom of God is not going to appear immediately? Because the kingdom of God had come spiritually, Jesus was not establishing it physically until his second coming. I mean, and even at the ascension, what do the disciples say right when Jesus is about to ascend? In Acts 1, is it at this time you're going to set up your kingdom? They still didn't get it. it. It actually tells us, I mean, that's the point in John 12, 16, they did not understand these things. So the kingdom of God had appeared spiritually, but it wouldn't be showing up physically until the second coming. And there's one more thing that makes this whole situation even worse. And I, I'll be honest with you, I read this and it's, it's almost, my heart almost goes out to the Jews who at least were sincere. Because there's one time in all of, on the Jewish calendar, there's one time when more than all other days combined, the Jews anticipated their deliverance. Does anyone know when that was? Passover. Passover was the one day more than all other days combined that the Jews anticipated their deliverance because Passover looked back on their deliverance. They think Jesus, the Messiah, is the new Moses, and now instead of Egypt, we've got Rome. And so as soon as Passover is rolling around, it's like greater anticipation. We know. And so just imagine what this is like. The Messiah comes... And instead of being Moses, he ends up being the lamb. Do you see what I'm saying by that? <laughs> instead of being the Moses who delivers, he ends up being the lamb that's slaughtered. The, the exact opposite of what they thought. And where are we right now? We're five days from Passover. We're five days from Passover. The anticipation for Jesus to be the next Moses is at an all-time high. They cannot wait for him to sit on David's throne. And he's going to come in, and instead of being the Moses that delivers, he's going to be the lamb that dies. And he fulfills the Old Testament prophecies, but not the ones that they wanted to see fulfilled. And my point is, this is what they are celebrating at the triumphal entry, Jesus being the next Moses. They are not celebrating him being the Lamb of God. And if you want to see just how bad their misunderstanding was, and now we have the foundation for this verse, look at verse 41, Luke 19, 41. When he drew near and saw the city. Absolutely shocking. This is a staggering verse. He wept over it. The triumphal entry, in the midst of all of the praising and shouting, Hosanna, the worshiping, the adoration, in the midst of all that, a huge crowd, the greatest reception that Jesus has had previously, as we talked about, deflecting the praise, not letting them make him king, because his time had not come repeatedly in the Gospels. My time has not come, my time has not come, my time has not come. Preventing, but now even the rocks are going to cry out. There's no silencing. 
And this is the one time that Jesus receives this open praise, and in the midst of it, he weeps. It is absolutely staggering. He just weeps like this. Go to verse 44. Jesus says, The Romans are going to tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. Even the mothers with babies are going to be slaughtered. They will not leave one stone upon another in you. And then notice this. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, if you didn't know everything we talked about (laughs) up to this point in the sermon, you're like, this makes no sense. Why would Jesus weep after being worshipped? Why would he say they missed the time of their visit when it looks like they recognize the time of their visitation? It looks like the exact opposite. Jesus says you miss the time of the visitation when it looks like they finally got it right. The Jews have been messing up through the whole gospel. And now finally they do something right. And Jesus is like, no, you didn't do it right. No, you missed the time through the tears, through the sobbing. You missed the time of the visitation because you have no idea what's happening. You are not honoring me. You are dishonoring me. They were dishonoring Christ because they did not accept him for who he was. They look like they're accepting him. They are rejecting him. As one commentator wrote, William Hendrickson, they are doing Jesus a gross injustice for they do not accept him for what he really is. They did not love the Jesus that rode in on the donkey. They despised that Jesus. And you'll see their hatred in a few chapters when they call out for his death. I mean, I can't tell you that. If I told you, if I said they despise Jesus, he'd be like, no, no, they don't despise Jesus. I wouldn't have the credibility to tell you that. But you know how this story goes. (laughs) We know he's going to be crucified. They're going to reject him. So when I tell you they despise him, you can believe me. You've got to think of Jesus' two comings this way. His first coming, he rides on a donkey to make peace between God and man. And in his second coming, he rides on what? A white horse to make war, destroy his enemies. Jesus' first coming, he's the lamb. The second coming, he's the lion. His first coming, he's dealing with the spiritual, people's sins. His second coming, he's dealing with the physical, defeating his enemies. Now, I want to conclude with this. It shouldn't, we shouldn't be too hard on the Jews. I, in fact, I just, I want to ask you. Maybe you don't like Jesus, to be honest. Maybe you don't like the Jesus that's been provided for you. If you don't like the Jesus that comes to deal with the enemies you face, sin and death, then you don't like the Jesus that's been provided. And there are a lot of people, there are many churches that are preaching a false Jesus. The prosperity gospel, the health and wealth movement, these people hate Jesus. They wouldn't tell you that, but they do. They despise Christ. As much as these, they look, they're yelling and celebrating just like Jesus at the triumphal, the crowd at the triumphal entry, but they despise Jesus just as much as these crowds do because they don't worship him for who he is. They don't want him for what he offers. They think he's going to make their lives better, not in terms of their sin being forgiven or being justified and imputed with Christ's righteousness, but their lives being better in terms of their trials being gone, making more money. And if that's why you love Jesus, you don't love Jesus. You hate Jesus. Because if that's why you love Jesus, you've actually rejected Jesus. All you love is an idol. You love an idol. You love a make-believe Jesus of your own imagination. 
or of the false teaching that might go forth in certain churches, if you want to call them churches. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. That is not the Jesus of the first coming. So we don't want to be too hard on the Jews because they missed the reason for Jesus' first coming, but we might as well if we think Jesus should fix all our problems. So we have to remind ourselves that Jesus came not to deliver us from trials and suffering. He came to save us from sin and death. And my hope is that rather than judging the Jews for missing the meaning of Jesus' first coming, we would consider how we might miss that meaning as well. We might consider why we love Christ, what we appreciate about him. Are we regularly thanking God that Jesus rescued us from sin and death, our biggest enemies, or are we like the Jews, regularly disappointed that we are not being released from our earthly troubles? If you have any questions or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be up front after service and I'd consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for why he came to deal with the true and greater problem of our lives, the sickness that afflicts us all, which is not physical, but is spiritual. We thank you that he came not to save us from any physical enemies, but to save us from the spiritual enemies and to give us that victory over death. If there be anyone here who looks to a false Jesus or looks to be saved from earthly troubles or from trials or to be healthier or wealthier because of Jesus, I pray that you'd grant repentance from that false belief and that false Messiah. Keep us free from that. I know that it's prevalent, Lord, that, that prosperity teaching or that health and wealth gospel. And so keep us clean from that, Lord. Let our, let our ears be sensitive to it when we hear it, to reject it. Pray especially for any young people that would encounter that, Lord. I pray that we would look to Jesus and see the reality of what he came for to die for our sins. And let us worship him for that reason. We pray this in his name. Amen.